Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested in this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, join Gelt. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder, you know, a founder that is a repeated founder, one of those that is the type of the tier zero founders that, you know, have been very successful. They're very hard to come by. And they obviously, once they do it, they do it again. And then now, you know, he's on another rocket ship. He sold his last company. And, uh, you know, we're going to be talking about building, scaling, co-founders, investors, board dynamics, you know, especially the ones that are not so favorable, not so positive, where there's going to be great lessons for all of us, you know, to learn from him. And uh, without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Luca Ivicevic. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So originally born and raised in New York City. So give us a walk through memory lane. Luca, how was life growing up? Yeah, not too bad. I mean, it's a bit rough growing up in New York City. I realized that uh, with my, from my friends that haven't lived in New York. But uh, yeah, born and raised in New York City, um, lived there until I was 18, moved to Paris, France to study uh, philosophy at the American University of Paris. Um, my last two years, I mainly focused on computer science. Uh, within those last two years, I started my first company, which was a social network. We raised half a million. Um, that company ended up going bust. I finished school on time. Then uh, moved to Berlin, thinking, "What do I do next?" Didn't have any idea about um, about you know generally the whole venture world. And uh, ultimately, a friend of mine and I came up with the idea to start Pentabank, which is today one of Europe's largest online banks. The company went on to raise over eighty million in capital, uh, banked fifty five thousand businesses with several billion deposits before being acquired in August of two thousand twenty two. So there we go. You know, that was the elevator pitch. You know, nobody could do it better than you, Luca. Now let's go, let's go back in, you know, a little bit in time. Let's say, let's do a, uh, you know, back, back in, in, in your journey. Um, I want to ask you, you know, what did you learn from, you know, obviously your parents, you know, went from Croatia to, to New York City, you know, to try to uh, get a better future, you know, for the family. You know, I'm sure that you learned a lot. I mean, I'm an immigrant myself, so I definitely, you know, um, really relate, you know, to those types of stories. How was it for you, you know, seeing your parents, you know, like really working hard and, and pushing things forward, you know, for the family? Yeah, sure. Um, so my, so both my parents were always huge readers. So, I mean, growing up was, you know, reading was central to what I was doing. Um, and still is super central to what, you know, to what I'm building now and generally, let's say my life. 
Um, so I would mainly look at it. I think 50% of me growing up was definitely my parents. I'd say the other 50% were the streets in New York. Um, so I started also selling sneakers at the age of 13, 14. So there were exclusive Nike SBs and Jordans. And if anything, that was really my first business. So um, I guess it's a mix of my parents, but also the streets. And one thing here that uh, obviously, you know, the entrepreneurial drive, you know, was there, you know, you got the bug early on, just as you were saying, selling sneakers. But why moving to Paris? You know, you had the incredible universities here in the U.S., some of the best in the world. So what what was the drive behind, you know, wanting to get out of the U.S.? Yeah, I was just getting a bit tired of New York, um, I guess, after 18 years. So uh, my parents were pushing me to do something new, something a bit different. And uh, what's a better place to study than uh Paris and in English for that matter. So it's kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity. So Yeah, no kidding. You know, obviously <laughs> different different cultures, different uh, perspective. I guess how did your world view and and the way that you look at problems, you know, perhaps uh, you know, shifted as a result of being able to take a look what's outside of the US and New York City? Yeah, it's funny because we got a we got a letter from the president of the university saying welcome to the university and coming to the best city in the world. And when I read that, I said, there's no way. I think New York is the best city. And I only moving to Paris did I realize that there's actually something more than New York. Um, for those New Yorkers listening, they everybody from New York thinks New York is the best city in the world. The reality is that there's actually just so much more than, than just you know one city and one way of thinking. And I think what Paris gave me was a dramatically different way just to think about life and to think about relationships and ultimately what I want to do with my life. So then talking about what to do with your life, you know, at, at 19, you know, you're like, hey, I think I want to I want to build something. And, you know, you were you went at it, you know, with a, with a social network and you raised some money there. Why? Why it didn't work out? What happened? Yeah. So that company, we started with a couple of friends. So actually, the the guy I actually started with, I ended up starting Penta with him. And then I start, ended up starting Index is what I'm doing now, the medical company. Um, and we got a bunch of friends on board and it was basically like a big, you know, bro group of friends, just like sitting around talking a lot. And we actually just didn't do much. Um, and so it was just something that wasn't serious. I mean, how we got the money is a different story, but it was more like, you know, I guess we were very convincing, but I think it was more, you know, we just had basically not a good team, um, that we put together. So, and that's just kind of been, been a reoccurring topic from, you know, different ventures I've seen, but also, also the things that I've built. So. So what was that lesson that you took from that experience? Because I'm sure it was painful. Yeah, that lesson was hire people who are much, much smarter than you are. That's, that's the one thing I took away from that first experience. So then you moved to Berlin and you got yep. your first job. Obviously, you went back to school, all of that stuff, and then eventually moved to Berlin and got your first job. And you didn't like it. Why, why was that the case? Yeah, I hated that job. So I was there for about six weeks. Um, I was more or less like a software consultant. And it was just the most uninspiring, unexciting thing. Um, and I didn't particularly like the people I was working with either. I think I thought they were nice guys. Um, I just, you know, just didn't like the, the vibe of it. And I wanted to build my own dream. And I thought to myself, you know, if I can raise half a million in 19, I can probably do much better at the age of 22. Um, so I just, I was just inspired of I want to build my own dream. I don't want to build somebody else's. That was probably my main motivation. So then Penta came knocking. So how did the whole idea of Penta come together and, and how do you guys put the band and, and got to work? Yeah, I mean, the reality is, is that business banking at the time really sucked, right? Um, it took three weeks to open a business bank account. You had to go to the branch. It was just, it was just, just a shit experience. Um, but 
D2C banking was exploding. So you had N26, you had Revolut. These types of companies in Europe were growing quickly, but nobody was looking at B2B banking. And so my co-founder from that 19-year-old company and I, uh, we said, hey, why don't we build a bank for small businesses? Um, and that's ultimately where the idea of Penta came, came by. So I guess for the people that are listening, what ended up being the business model of Penta? How were you guys making money there? Yeah, so it was a subscription model. You would pay basically uh, $9 as a base rate for uh, a business bank account. We would make money from FX. For those fintech listeners, we'd also make money from the interchange. So every time you pay with a card, we get a certain percentage from the merchant. So, and, and then also, obviously, now with your next business, we're going to be talking about in just a little bit, you know, that's more in New York and then also in Miami where you guys have the offices. But with, with this one, you know, with, with Penta, Basically, you guys started this out of Berlin and, you know, you ended up making this a meaningful operation there in Europe. How was it different, you know, to operate a business in Europe versus, you know, maybe what you're experiencing in the U.S.? Sure. So when, when, I, like, when we started Penta, we had absolutely no money. I had to ask my parents for, for $1,500 um, to live for those extra three months. And so we sat around all day. We, we built a simple website saying, sign up for Penta, leave your, leave your email on the waitlist type of thing. Um, and we went on Twitter and started tagging people. We liked over 20,000 likes, uh, 20,000 posts, believe it or not. So we were just hustling, trying to build it out. So we had very little knowledge of actually building, but we learned a ton. Um, we then applied to an accelerator. We got in because we had a couple of hundred or a couple of thousand at that point, uh, people on the waitlist. Um, and so it was kind of like a very rough way to build given that we didn't have any hard skills other than engineering skills. Um, and so I'd say the dynamic wasn't, I wouldn't say Europe versus US. I would look at it more like, who are we at the age of 22 and not knowing what we're doing? But I'm sure you know the Mark Anderson question of what's the most important product, team, or market. In our case, the market was able to just suck us out and actually build it out, even though our team, I wouldn't say necessarily was great. Now, let's talk about that. You know, let's talk about team and, and, you know, just before we, we go into that, let's talk about, you know, investment. You guys raised quite a bit of money prior to the acquisition. How much money did you guys raise? Sure. We raised uh, 80 million in capital. 80 million. And, and what was that journey of raising that money, you know, from one cycle to the next? Sure. Um, yeah, it was a, it was a fucking nightmare. I can, I can tell you that. <laughs> I don't know if I can curse on these, but yeah, I mean, our first investment was 15K, which, which we survived with four people, believe it or not. Uh, then it was 100k, and then you know, and then the money just kept going, like two million here, seven million there. But after every fundraise, it was more or less like we had basically three months of cash left. I'd say until about Series Series B. Uh, once Series B hit, where we raised a 30 million Series B, roughly, that's when you know we had a ton of cash. We became a super big business, and things were were a bit smoother. I'd say in the fundraising route, but getting to basically let's say 100 or 200k in revenue was extremely difficult. You know, nobody wanted to pay for a bank account. Uh, Germany is, is, a, is a very hypersensitive market and it's a conservative market. So it was just difficult. Um, and I think it was actually difficult for everybody. I don't think, you know, fintech sounds very glamorous. It's all over TechCrunch, but it's actually a very difficult market to raise money in. Yeah, no, I hear you. Why, what, what makes it so difficult? I say the unit economics. Um, the unit economics in particular aren't great, um, especially at small scale. Um, there's also the compliance angle, et cetera, but, you know, today everybody's saying like unit economics are important, but you know, when we were fundraising in 2016 through 2021 in reality, um, unit economics were always the focus of it. And so, you know, if 
banking as a whole is also super low margin. So um, if anything, what I've learned for what I do now is like, you know, you, your unit economics need to be sharp if you plan to raise money and if you plan to grow it. So the better your revenues, the less dependent you are essentially on venture funding. Now, one of the uh, biggest lessons here, you know, uh, that uh, that happened with Penta was choosing the right people, whether that was the right co-founders or the right investors. And it sounds like the choice on both was shaky, you know, and I'm sure that, uh, you know, you've gone about it, you know, in a different way now with your next company, which we're going to be talking about, you know, eventually now. But uh, what happened there with co-founders? Because you fire some of them. Sure. Yeah. I think there was, there was two phases of the company. There was the young phase, like we just need to start it off and get it together. And I think the team that was building then was right for that moment. But we got to a certain stage where those people were actually holding us back. And we actually needed just to basically move on to the next level. So I think there's a huge difference between what a seed team is, and then what a series A and beyond team is. And in our case, I'd say Penta from the beginning was always a very um, volatile and let's say, you know, it was like more very banking aggressive, which you would imagine the like kind of in a movie. Harry was a very strong character, obviously, including myself. But there was a bit too many strong characters in the room with not enough decisions being made. And we basically had to make some cuts that were actually eventually better for the business. So I think bad atmospheres led to bad outcomes. And um, we just, you know, purely also just didn't enjoy working with some people. And how were you guys able to uh, come to um, to a good team? you know, a finish line, because I mean, I've, I've experienced that too with prior companies and where I had co-founders that perhaps, you know, like not were, you know, they were not the right fit, you know, for whatever stage, you know, the company was in, but, uh, but those conversations were not easy. So how were you guys were able to navigate those murky waters with co-founders? I think it's just about being straight up to the person and, um, telling them, Hey, this is what it is. Um, this is how, you know, we're, we're essentially ending the relationship. And, uh, you know, let's figure it out. These are the terms, you know, whether it's a three month notice or a six or whatever it may be. But I think, you know, and then, you know, these people took shares home. Um, you know, they, they obviously came out with a good exit. And so I think it's just about being respectful at the end of the day. But, um, I think it's such an important thing to do. Most startups that I see actually have very bad founder dynamics. Um, and they, you know, either they fight a lot, but they're so driven by that vision that they just don't want to give up on it. But um, I think that if somebody's holding you back, you just have to get rid of them. Either you have to leave for the sake of the company or, or they need to go. But what somebody needs to essentially go. So, Hey, guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domains. I mean, obviously, if you're a startup or an entrepreneur, you got to be super careful on how you go about your presence and how you get the catchy domain. And that's why I recommend .tech Domains as the go-to place to really get your own domain. A good example here is Aurora.tech, which is an innovative brand that has the .tech domain associated to it. Aurora.tech actually works at the intersection of rigorous engineering to address one of the most challenging issues of our generation, which is transforming the way that people and goods move. It is set to launch Horizon, which is Aurora's first autonomous service that's designed to bring safety, value, and efficiency to carriers and fleet owners. I've actually arranged an amazing deal for all of you, and that is you can get your one-year domain for $10 or a five-year domain for $50. Just go to go.tech forward slash dealmakers, and that's again go.tech forward slash dealmakers to get your own. And now on, on the co-founder side, you're able to, to have those type of divorces, but with investors, you can't. 
So how were you guys able to navigate, you know, uh, murky waters too with investors, especially when you had bad board dynamics? Yeah, I think uh, the, the I see the big mentality problem at Penta was a bit of that uh, survivor kind of mentality. Like we need to take the money, even if it's the devil's money. That was like, that was <laughs> that was a phrase that we would, <laughs> that we would repeat often. And um, I don't I don't think we necessarily took, took the devil's money ever, but. But um, but it was kind of that desperation move. We were making decisions out of fear. You know, we were scared of like, if we don't do this, what do we do? So, um, I think while while a good board cannot make a great company, that was a, that was a big saying going around when when Twitter was getting acquired because you know, arguably Twitter Twitter's board completely fucked up what they're doing. But a, a bad board can essentially ruin a company, which I think was definitely the case, or almost the case with Twitter's in, in Twitter's case. And I think that was actually largely um, also, that's actually a reason why I also left Penta, where I just don't think that the dynamics between uh, our team and the management and and particularly what the board looks at, were actually matching things. So, Got it. Now, now, obviously, you've experienced bad board dynamics, and now you've experienced good board dynamics. So what is the difference between one another? Yeah, that's really important. Um, I think a good board is understands their limits. So a VC can't help you build a business. And I think a lot of board members, or let's say the Penta board, board members often thought that, you know, the people they invested in, they knew more than them. Um, and I think that's just a bad mistake. I mean, these, these are people I just wouldn't necessarily raise money from again. I mean, I, you know, I wish them the best of luck, but it was just an understanding of, of, you know, this is what we're good at. This is what you're good at. Let's match these two visions together. While um, in, a, in a good board, it's more of an enablement, you know, it's more of like, a, what do I need to help you? And if I can't help you, you know, like, then I'm just not going to really push for it. So enabling a, a management team to do what they do best is, is important. Sometimes just being silent can actually be the most important. With that said, though, um, what I've experienced from great investors is that they are super engaged and they ask the right questions. It's more of a what do I need to ask my portfolio company rather than what do I need to tell them or what do they need to do? Yeah, so it sounds more like the type of board where it's more like the management reporting to them versus making the board work for you and helping you on strategy so that you can implement it, no? Yeah, exactly. I think it was, I think it's definitely more that. I also think kind of founder, like a founder board relationship is that a founder needs to run the board in the company. And the second a founder loses that, um, where it's the board leading it, which is also a reason that I, I just left. I didn't think the company was for me anymore, was that it was actually the opposite, where it was more of like a board type of thing. Um, and so that I just think that dynamic is important. So for those founders listening out there, it's like you need to lead these conversations and you actually need to run it. And if you don't, you're just going to lose that, that sense and, and you're going to lose that power. So. so then tell us about the acquisition, because, uh, you know, eventually. You know, you guys uh, ended up doing a transaction with Conto. So uh, how was that? How did that transaction come about? And and I know that, you know, obviously there's some confidentiality, you know, uh, restrictions there. We can't go into terms or stuff like that. But but tell us about the process. How did it happen? And then what was that journey all the way until inking the deal? Sure. Um, so I know the I know the founders of Conto from back in the day in 2016. We used to we used to chat briefly and, hey, how are things doing? They were always a year ahead of us. Um, I think. Alex and, and the team are, are absolutely exceptional founders. Um, and Alex actually reached out to me in, in January of last year asking if I could introduce 
if I can introduce him to, to the existing management. Um, I didn't think much of it. Um, I just heard a couple of weeks later that, you know, what the reason of that was actually. And I think the synergy absolutely makes sense. So Conto had had a vision of expanding across Europe while Penta was very focused on Germany. And the acquisition made sense where cracking the German market is, is, is almost an impossible feat. And it's something that we were able to crack at scale. And so acquiring it actually made a lot of sense. So what that actually looked like, I mean, you know, the valuation multiple increased dramatically from the last raise. So, um, you know, I actually have no complaints on that, but it's always a question, you know, do you want to buy or get bought? I'm, I'd rather buy. <laughs> so I think that's, that's probably the big difference in, in ambition. Uh, listen, it made some board members happy. I think that's what, you know, probably why I wouldn't work with them or, or people in the management. But uh, I think it was at the end, I think it was a good outcome. And I think that, you know, the, the company is better fit in, in, in content. So then let's talk about turning the page. So you turn the page, you know, and obviously index health, you know, your next thing idea comes into play now. This was all the result of um, really experiencing, you know, the unfortunate news of your mother being diagnosed with, um, with an autoimmune disease. And that kind of like, it really sparked, you know, the 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 idea, you know, of what would eventually, you know, come as Index Health. So walk us through what was that, you know, process like, how all of a sudden, you know, you started to incubate the thought of really making a difference based on what you had seen with your mom and and how you find yourself today, you know, leading this company. Sure. Yeah. So my mom was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease in 2017. And the t- she ran down the typical traditional medicine route. She got more and more medication from each doctor she went to with her health only getting worse. And after about a year of her health getting worse, she said, you know, I don't want to continue doing this. She did some research, found a doctor that specialized in precision medicine. And uh, what they did is they took advanced lab tests. They diagnosed the root cause of why did this disease suddenly pop up at the age of 60? And based on that, they created a very personalized plan tailored towards her. So everything from nutrition, lifestyle changes, supplements, medication, but with the goal of getting off the medication. And they fine-tuned it. So they kept working with her. And actually, after about a year of of that work, she reversed what she had or basically put it to a stable zero. And it just got me thinking, why isn't all of medicine this data-driven and this personalized? Like, why don't we do this for cancer? Why don't we do this for diabetes, child autism, right? early Alzheimer's, um, there's actually, there's just so many, you know, acne may be like, like weight problems. There are just so many problems that we can actually handle with such a precise way of doing, of doing medicine. Um, it's also, by the way, referred to as functional medicine. Um, and so that's, and you know, and that's the vision of the company. How do we make this reality of medicine a reality for a billion people globally? Um, and with that description, that's exactly what the company does. So we focus on chronic disease. We also do uh, biohacking and and uh, and 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 longevity, um, which I'm a patient of myself, obviously. So that's amazing. I mean, obviously now I there's a lot of uh, longevity is uh, is a really big one. Now, I guess for the for the people that are listening, you know, to get it, you know, what 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 ended up being the business model here with Index Health? Sure. So we currently charge a flat monthly subscription fee, uh, which is two hundred dollars or one hundred ninety nine dollars per month. Um, we're now getting enrolled with insurance companies to be able to offer this. Um, so our goal is accessibility today. Functional or precision medicine is generally a wealthy person product. Um, and so what we, what we're trying to do now is make this extremely accessible to everybody. Um, so that, that that's more or less the business model. 
And uh, when it comes to product market fit, you know, that's one of your suits. You know, that's uh, something that you exceed at, you know, as well with fundraising and choosing teammates, obviously, based on prior experience. But I guess on product market fit, you know, what does it look like when you're able to achieve product market fit and any anything that can be done to accelerate, you know, that process of having things flying off the shelf? Yeah, so at Penta, our product market fit was we launched a product, got in maybe 50, maybe 100 customers, barely. And we just kept hearing the reoccurring topic of, I need a business bank account that la- that is for businesses that are incorporating. It's a very specific thing for German businesses. And with that lesson, we, we launched that within a couple of weeks and our, we you know, 10x the business literally within three months. Um, and so that was kind of a more or less, I'd say, a pretty quick way to get to product market for Penta. And, you know, just pure listen to customer feedback. With Index on the opposite hand, we've been, you know, product market fit has been a never-ending process. Um, our biggest lever to product market fit wasn't the product itself, uh, but it was actually how we communicate what we do. And so today, if you go on our website, it probably looks like a basic website, but there is so much psychology and data behind every single button and every single flow that we actually take people. Um, and we know our conversion rate super well. So it came down to how well do we actually communicate this? And, you know, it came from a quantitative aspect of, you know, where are people clicking? How are people flowing? To a qualitative, just interviewing customers and saying like, hey, what's not very clear here? But that process itself uh, actually took about a year, if not a year and six months. And then what about the fundraising here for Index Health? How have you guys gone about finding the investors and, and how much capital have you guys raised so far? Sure. So we've raised uh, slightly over $5 million in capital at the moment. Um, that was our seed round. Um, finding investors, I'd say, was, you know, you would, like, I thought coming into this, being a second-time founder, things are going to be easier, but it was actually extremely difficult. So we pitched to over 90 investors for our seed round and uh, two invested, uh, plus some handful of angels. And looking at that aspect, basically, when we started pitching, we had maybe about 5, 10K in monthly recurring revenue. And in about three months from there, we had about 20 to 30K. So let's say we roughly tripled our revenue in that time period. And that's when the conversation completely changed with all investors. And that kind of goes back to my initial emphasis of your unit economics and your growth rate coupled together is your biggest lever to, to fundraising. And uh, also when it comes to, uh, to investors, you know, the um, vision, I'm sure it was a big one you know, that you were sharing with them. So imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight, Luca, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Index Health is fully realized. What does that world look like? Sure. I, I genuinely think that our generation could live um, to 150, if not even more. Um, so I think that, um, you know, chronic disease can be eliminated um, and we could actually reverse it. I also think that longevity is within our grasp, not to mention everything that's going on on the genomic side of things, obviously, and, you know, or, you know, engineering as a whole, right? So I think that um, looking at it from, from that perspective, that I think we could eliminate chronic disease like cancer, diabetes, um, and other things, you know, and other ailments. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's same remarkable when you say 150 years, because, you know, people would think, oh, my God, Luca is, is crazy, you know, thinking that we could extend things so much. But if you take a look at the at prior history, you know, like 200 years ago, being able to make it to like 30 or 40 years old, I mean, 
it was unbelievable. It was quite a success. So, uh, you know, now with modern medicine, you know, like now you see people going to over a hundred, right? And it's a, you see it, you know, repeatedly nowadays. So what else do you think, you know, needs to happen, you know, for, for us, you know, to be able to reach, let's say 150 years, if we could fast forward. Yeah. So what kills me is that when you, so if you look at any graph that correlates uh, health to wealth, the wealthier you are, the longer you live. And that really kills me. Um, And that purely comes down to accessibility. So I think the first thing is that people need access to advanced form of diagnostics, but also treatment. I think that's the first half of the equation. The second half is that people need to know what drives sickness. So, you know, if we put in the wrong gas in our car, the car stops working. But if we put in, you know, tens of thousands of, of trash, you know, essentially food within our body, people are surprised that we get cancer and all sorts of different health problems. And I think it's understanding certain drivers, but also what actually to fix based on those drivers is going to be critical in actually helping us. So that's just on like how people are living. And then there's, you know, other advanced forms of treatments, let's say peptide therapy, um, you know, gene therapy, I don't even want to get into at the moment, but I'm saying like, those additional things to, are to give us that extra boost, right? That our genetics may not be able to play into. But I think that the first step is how do we bridge the wealth gap and how do we increase accessibility? And the second thing is just A, from a diagnostics, being aware of what's driving it and essentially, you know, how do we essentially prevent it? And then again, peptides and, you know, genomics and everything else is just a whole new ball game. how we can extend that even further. So. That's amazing. So uh, obviously here, you know, we've been talking about the future, but I want to talk about the past and doing so with a lens of reflection. So let's say, you know, like I was to put you into a time machine, Luca, and I bring you back in time. I bring you back in time, maybe to that moment where you were, you know, in, in Paris there, you know, in a terrace, you know, enjoying the Eiffel Tower, whatever that is. And uh, you had the opportunity of sitting down with that younger self, that younger 19-year-old that is thinking about maybe starting a company, you know, of your own. If you were able to sit down right there with that younger Luca and give that younger Luca one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? Yeah, I would, I would definitely emphasize uh, worry less, enjoy life more. Um, it's not to say not to work hard, but um, I feel like... Um, Sometimes you work so hard that you're so masked by everything that's happening at work that you just need to step out for a second. And I feel like stepping out has has been the one thing that's helped me repeatedly in being better at what I do. So my work is is my life, but stepping away from that and you know just having fun with friends, going out. Um, I think these things really awaken you and help you look at things much differently, so you can actually do better at life. So I would, in all in all, I would say you know worry less and. and Keep a smile on. I love that. For the people that are listening, Luca, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter, L-U-K-A-I-V-I-C-E-V. Um, that's probably the best way at the moment. Amazing. Well, hey, Luca, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Yeah, thanks a lot. I really enjoyed it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.